You're listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts come iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you, but as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. It's good to see you, good to hear your voices. Um, So when I was a kid, I grew up in a Christian home, and uh, my father used to tell me stories of many people of faith, and one of the primary ones I grew up listening to was a guy named George Meller. He uh, was this Englishman, he was a pastor, but he also ran an orphanage. And um, the thing about Miller, he was this man that proposed in his heart early on that he would never ask a man for any of his needs. He would only pray. And so my dad would tell me these stories about Miller's faith. And there, and I challenge you, there's an autobiography you can read about him. He was an incredible man. But like there were these stories where uh, this one time Miller was on this this. 
uh, transatlantic journey for this, this very important meeting that he had. And there was a deep fog set over, and so the ship had to stall. They couldn't go any further because it was unsafe. But Miller needed to make his appointment. And so he went to the captain and said, Captain, we, we've got to keep going. And the captain's like, I can't go because of the fog. And so he asked for a room in the ship that he could go pray so that the fog would lift. And so the captain shows him to this room and George Miller gets down and prays and the captain like joins him because he's like, okay. And so Miller prays for the God, God to lift the fog and, and then the captain starts to pray. And I can just imagine the scene where George looks at him and he goes, no, you don't need to do that. God's already, I know my God, he's already done it. And so he's like, let's go upstairs. The fog is lifted. And so in fact, they go upstairs, and true to fact, the fog had lifted, and they were able to proceed, and this amazed the ship captain. He ended up later becoming a Christian himself because of what he experienced. And then there were all these stories that seemed just fantastical of, of George having this orphanage, and there never being, like, uh, uh, enough food in the house for all the kids, and so there's this one morning for breakfast, uh, they don't have any food for the kids. And so George prays, and then he says, he tells the staff, seat the kids at the table, get them ready for the meal. And so they get ready for the meal, they say their blessing, and right when it's time for the meal, the door knocks on the door, and there's a baker. And the baker says, in the middle of the night, I just felt like you guys would need food this morning. And so I've brought enough bread and food for he had enough food for all the kids and so they hand out the food and as they hand out the food there's another knock on the door and the milkman's cart had broken down in front of the orphanage and the milkman says hey I by the time this gets full gets fixed all the milk will be spoiled so can you guys use this milk and so you can imagine growing up on these stories that I became to believe the simple truth that God may let us face difficulty, but he won't let us suffer. He will, you know, at the very last moment when the place settings are set and the, ta- and, the, and the plate, but the plates are empty, he rings the doorbell and he provides the meal. That is kind of this thing I understood of God. And so you can imagine years later as I grow up and I'm now an adult and I finish Bible school and I head off to my first uh, job, which is this, uh, this church in Colorado, and I was a youth pastor there, and um, it was definitive that, that God had called me to this specific church, and one of the issues, though, they couldn't afford to pay me, and so I, I, I worked as uh, an AV tech on the side, so I worked a full-time job in service of this ministry, uh, drink break, thank you, everyone, please give it up for my lovely wife. <clears throat> a helpmate, indeed. Um, so I make it to this church. I have this first appointment. I'm, I'm working in ministry. And, uh, I, and we're seeing incredible things happen. Uh, I take charge of this, this small team of people, and, and they are growing in their gifts and their skill sets. We, we move into these, these small amount of kids, and we start to teach them about Jesus. And they just like fire breaks out. I mean, we have kids to this day from that youth group that are now doing ministry in their own right. People turned from suicide. Families were reconciled. It was just beautiful, beautiful work. This is 2007, followed 2007 into 2008. And so the recession comes, but no one knows that yet, or at least not on the ground. And so I lose my job uh, that, I was, that was supporting me. 
And very quickly, I find myself, as a lot of people in our society are, one paycheck away from being displaced. And so uh, I'm effectively houseless. I'm living on the worship leader's couch, which, like, I'm 6'3", and it was four foot nothing. Uh, So, uh, you know, I'm crammed on this small couch. I'm surviving off the, like, $20 he can spot me here and there. And there are these nights and these times where I'm waiting, like George Miller, I've prayed and I'm waiting for that doorbell to ring. And it doesn't, it doesn't ring. There's no milk cart for me. And I go hungry. And it's winter in Colorado and my boots uh, give way because they were cheap anyway. And so they open up to the winter and I still am diligently serving at this church, um, and I'm suffering. And I can't really understand it because I had this belief that God would let me go through difficulty. Sure, you lose your job. That happens to a lot of people. But would he really let me go hungry? Like, would he really let me suffer? Wow, mind you, I am doing his work that he called me to? I became really confused. Actually, there was this process. Maybe you know this process. I developed all these questions about God and my beliefs. And then those questions became complaints. And then my complaints became contempt. And all of this was really an expression of the confusion and the trauma I was experiencing from my beliefs about God not matching my experience of God. And so I began this process which outwardly uh, would look like what some today would call deconstruction. And that's a term we hear about a lot today. Um, You have friends that are, you know, probably have told you like, we need to like deconstruct our our faith. We need to deconstruct, you know, uh, these systems uh, that we've subscribed to. There's a lot of talk of culturally around deconstruction. And this concept is rooted in the work and philosophy of a 20th century philosopher, uh, Jock Derrida. And he essentially posited, sorry. He essentially posited that we, particularly in Western culture, subconsciously reject the true tension of opposing thoughts in the world. And instead, we force the world into a series of hierarchical hierarchical binaries. So we say reason is better than passion. Men are better than women. Words are better than pictures. And this craving for a crude simplicity to life causes us to embrace a narrow understanding of the world. And so uh, Dorita just basically says that we should deconstruct our inherent core beliefs. We should interrogate these things and find that there's value in the things that we have uh, subconsciously dismissed. Now, fast forward from the 1960s and the height of Dorita's work to today, and the societal concept of deconstruction has taken a tenor, not necessarily of dismissing the value of things that we subconsciously uh, dismiss, but uh, it's not the tenor of dismissing or reclaiming what we subconsciously dismiss but it's more about interrogating any and all inherited or long-held beliefs and discarding them if they don't serve us or are found to be flawed in any way. 
to give us a brief uh, kind of a succinct definition of this, I would say that the societal understanding of deconstruction that you may hear is about tearing down the perceived problematic societal structures and inherent truths we have believed about the world in search of true peace. And on its face, like, this is good. Some would even say it's necessary work. Like, interrogating the beliefs and the structures that we use to hold up our, ourselves is, I would say, some of the most basic human work. And maybe this is work you've been up to consciously or subconsciously. You know, the past two years have afforded us all a lot of time for reflection. <laughs> and beyond the upheaval of our norms, we've, our, our, our norms have been upheaved. And so many of our presuppositions about life have been challenged, about what we need, about where we should live, about who we should be. And that's just from COVID. The social unrest around this world, particularly around race, has left a lot of us minorities wrestling with the inherent beliefs about self and the people and the places that we've entrusted ourselves to. Even here in our community, those who have been here and thought that it was like Brooklyn till we die until it wasn't. And now maybe you're left wondering if you just didn't get the memo. And what even is this community? And what even is church? And maybe it's none of that, but in your personal life, you've seen a different side of the people you love. And now you're deconstructing these relationships and the people and the places where you come from. And if you're being honest for the first time about things that have happened to you and you're wrestling with the implications... And then what we end up doing, we start this process of deconstruction because everyone around us is talking about deconstruction. We start ripping up the floor that we're standing on. But then we realize when you deconstruct the stuff that you're standing on, you free fall. Because deconstruction is a necessary beginning but a disastrous ending. If all we do is tear, if all we do is rip out, then we are left wandering falling, confused, disoriented. And our societal philosophies have left a lot of people free-falling, untangled, sure, from things that were seemingly killing them, but also deeply vulnerable and without vision for what happens next. You probably have people that you know of. Maybe you yourself are kind of in this place of what is life? But I want to offer that this work is not confined to modern philosophy. The scriptures offer us a process for which deconstruction is not the totality, but it's actually the beginning step of a path of wholeness. And over the next seven weeks, I want to offer you a framework for how to engage in the soul questions you may be asking. And so we're not, we're not uh, uh, being adversaries toward these societal questions of deconstruction. But actually what I want to posit is that the, the, the biblical narrative has a wider process of which deconstruction is just the beginning. We're going to call that renovation. And that's the process of yielding to the transformative work of the Holy Spirit in our, live, of the Holy Spirit in our lived experiences so that we may receive true peace. This is our teaching text today. We're going to be journeying through the Psalms over the next seven weeks. Uh, but we're going to start here in Psalm 73 because in Psalm 73, we actually kind of see the whole process that we're going to be going through in this new series. Psalm 73 is written by Asaph. He was uh, this chief musician of David. And 
there's this beautiful thing where he's riding out his heart in this like season of life. And I think that as we walk through this, and we're not going to be able to go line by line as I would love in the time that we have, but I want to hit the four steps of the process that we'll be going through. And the first is this, as we said, deconstructing, this is where we start, deconstructing beliefs. We see this in the opening line where Asaph gives us this chief belief that he has about God, which is this, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Similar to me, he had this belief in, in, in God's goodness towards the righteous, but toward his people. But then in verse 2, Asaph tells us the conflict, right? His lived experience is this. But as for me, my, foot had, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph begins this song with a simple declaration of the goodness of his people. And he is convicted not only that God was good, but that he actively showed that goodness to Israel. But then he has this conflicting belief. It seems that God was good to the boastful and to the wicked, that he was good to the pure in heart, but he was also good to the unpure in heart, that they were prospering. And he couldn't hold these two beliefs together. They were causing this incongruence. They were causing this pain. How could God be for the righteous, but also be for the wicked? Then what does it matter? As we talk about deconstructing beliefs over the next few weeks, we're going to be asking the questions, what have you always believed about God? And where are the areas you feel duped or disoriented? Where are the places where you're like, I don't know if I really signed up for this. I didn't really know this is who you were or what this was. Asaph deconstructs his beliefs and then he moves beyond that to this place of grief because in this conflict, in this tension, in the incongruence between what he believes about God and what he sees of God, there produces a grief. And when we talk about grief, we aren't talking about crying. Oftentimes when we talk about grief, we kind of just mean like people that are just kind of bent out of shape or like, I don't know if you guys remember the comic strip, Kathy, where she's got like the hands like flickering out. When I talk about grief, what we're talking about is following our pain down the rabbit hole. Think of grief as a honing beacon to our pain. See, when we go through these uh, next few verses, if you read them intently, and I, and I challenge you to go back and sit with them and look through them, Asaph is painting uh, is pain because what he sees is the prospering of the wicked. And what on the face it starts because he looks and he says, the, the wicked have full humanity. He says in verse 4 that they, have, they are healthy and strong. Their bodies are healthy and strong. And then by the time he gets through looking at all his grief, his problem with the wicked is not only do they seem to have full humanity, but they also seem to have full divinity because by the time he gets to verse 11, the wicked, he says, they say, how could God know? Does the Most High know anything? They know more than God. They have transcended above God. And so he's left wondering, here I am suffering as someone given my heart to God, and here is this wicked person, not only thriving, 
but seemingly above what I, my station. They are not just a healthy human, but they are almost God. They have the, uh, the stature and the ability to judge God. And at the bottom of this grief is a lie. At the deepest part of the pain, Asaph is essentially saying, I'm a fool. I have given myself to God in hopes that this would make me righteous, in hopes that this would find my favor, find me favor in him. I have denied myself the pleasures of this world. I have put myself into submission to the ways and the practices of the Lord, and yet everyone who hasn't has more than me. What a fool I am. Oftentimes, we stay on the surface of grief. We encounter the trauma of people we love leaving. We encounter the trauma of societal we bump up against beliefs that are being put on us. And oftentimes we can just think that the pain is just limited to what this person said or didn't say to me or this situation, and we grieve these situations. And we don't actually often follow the grief all the way down because sometimes it just feels too much. It feels like if I, if I follow it down, I will drown. Like if I slip my head below the waters, I won't come back up. And so I have to do whatever I can to keep the pain minimalized, to keep the pain uh, uh, just underneath, to paint the pain manageable. And so I do whatever I need to do to, to give me some relief to buoy me a little bit. Whatever substance, whatever action, whatever thing I need to indulge in, just to not follow the pain down, because it feels like if we follow the pain down, we'll never come back up. And yet, the biblical narrative, one, is such that if we allow Jesus, if we don't run from our pain, but we enter our pain, and we walk with him through grief, as the psalmist in 23 there says, uh, walking through the valley of the shadow of death. If we fear no evil because what the, the, his rod and his staff, the shepherd is guiding us. If we follow him to our pain, at the bottom of that, what we will often find is a lie. A lie about ourselves, a lie about God. And that lie is stirring up our pain. When we understand grief later as we talk throughout these next weeks, we're going to be answering the question, or we're going to be diving into the question, what have you known in theory about God that seemed incongruent with what you experienced in the world? What pain has that wrought? What does it look like for us to follow the grief to the lie? And this is why this is necessary, because if you circumvent, if you bail out, 
If you just focus on the circumstance, which we often do, this place is hard, so I'll move to this place, and surely that place won't be as hard. What you'll find is all your troubles, they have your forwarding address. Like his name changes and his look changes, but he's the same old dude you've always been dating. So when we don't circumvent the pain, when we get down to the lie, the thing that is producing this pain, we find God. Asaph does this, confronting a lie. He says all this in verse 16, when I had... When I tried to understand all this, when I tried to understand all these things that were grieving me, it troubled me deeply. I thought that I would be overwhelmed. Until, verse 17, I entered the sanctuary of God. It is in entering the place where God dwells that Asaph begins to find some clarity. He ends 17 with this. Then I understood their final destiny. See, the lie, I am a fool, predicated on this incongruence between me being righteous and and able to, to receive the prosperity of God and the wicked doing whatever they want and receiving prosperity. What Asaph comes to find is that the lie is that the wicked prosper like the righteous is exchanged for the truth that the righteous face temporary loss for ultimate gain and the wicked face temporary gain for ultimate loss. That he, in fact, was not a fool. But he comes into God and God shows him, no, in the end, I will give everyone their due. So yes, my goodness shines on the wicked and the righteous alike. But if you follow after me, all these things will be added unto you. I will lead you into the path of everlasting. But for the wicked, eventually the jig's up. For the next few verses, Asaph starts to testify of what happens to the wicked how they slip and how they're destroyed, how when the Lord awakes, he despises them as fantasies. But here's what's so important that we find here. That exchanging of the lie for the truth, that is not our work. It's not something we are capable of doing. It must, must be the work of God. My wife and I, we're, we're recent, uh, we're homeowners. We just purchased our, our first home, and it is uh, over 100 years old. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> and let me tell you, not many things last for 100 years. Uh, but some parts of this house has, others haven't. Um, and uh, we're finding all those parts. And so uh, we are diligently, like, saving uh, to some coming day when we'll be able to renovate this home. But we're saving um, because we've got to hire somebody to do this. And the reason we've got to hire somebody to do this is because, yes, we do live in the age of YouTube. Um, but I will mess this house up even more if I try to do it myself. I mean, I've gotten proficient in hanging a light. I feel pretty good about that. 
But when it comes to knocking down walls, I don't quite trust myself to know which wall should stay and which wall should go. Because if you don't know, some walls are really important in a home. And so I've got to go find somebody who has the requisite knowledge and experience, who has the vision of my home, who understands the blueprints of what this house should be, who has the technical proficiency to come in and actually remove what needs to be removed and keep what needs to stay and to fortify what is good um, with what is better. When we get about this work of deconstructing in our own lives and we make it our business, we go into our hearts and our minds and we start ripping and throwing and knocking that out and that doesn't serve me and you didn't know that you actually kind of needed that. This is why it's so important that this work is led by God, is done by God, is finished by God. The power of the Holy Spirit at work with us, we have to enter the sanctuary of God confronting the lie, and he takes that lie and exchanges it for a truth. The questions we'll be exploring is what lies dwell in the bottom of your heart? Lies about yourself, lies about God. What is he hoping to swap? But that's not the end of the story. So this lie is exchanged. But then we move to this final step of the process, which is walking with the limp. We see this for Asaph when he comes out of this recognition that I am not a fool. Actually, the wicked aren't prospering in the way that I think they're prospering. God is a God ultimately of justice. He says this, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Asaph comes to realize it's not his circumstances that need deconstructing, but actually it was him himself. That actually he was a beast before God. That he needed renovating. And so now he's realizing, gosh, I've been a beast and I've got to like change. I've got to walk forward. And so now there's this turn up into this point in the psalm. Asaph is focused on uh, his hurt. He's focused on their prosperity. But then when he enters into the kingdom of God, the psalm takes a subtle shift. For now, Jesus leads, the Spirit leads, God leads. And so Asaph says, verse 23, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Asaph has now realized that the Spirit is working at him. And now he has to walk forward, being led by the Spirit, not led by his own visions, not led by his own condemnations his own contempt. But this is not a settled and sure thing. In verse 26, he says this, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See, the reality is that as we find ourselves to the bottom of our grief and after we allow the spirit to exchange that lie for truth, we have to walk that out 
But sometimes we'll have to go back again. That we will fail in other places and need the renovation of God in this place. Our flesh and our heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We need constant renovation. But now, I want to be clear. We see this in the end. That God is still moving to address the wicked situations. He is Asaph that needed renovating, but God is still at work in his circumstances because there is things to be addressed. God is still a God of justice. We see this in the pursuing verses in 27, 28. He says, you know, uh, those who are far from you will perish. You will destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. Maybe the things you're confronting, the things that you're trying to deconstruct, you're right. These systems probably need to go. They need to be changed. But when we, ha- when we move ourselves from the ones that have to change it, and to allowing ourselves to be changed by the Spirit. And then we can give God his rightful place as the only one who can change broken things. And then he invites us into it. He leads us and he gives us counsel. And he eventually sets everything straight. So the questions that we'll be asking is, how have you been renovated? Some of you maybe have already been through this process. And like Asaph, at the end of this psalm, he says, I will tell of your deeds. This becomes the work of the renovated. We now become a testimony. We become the Google review (laughs) to give testimony to what God has done and can do. Where are the places and the people you are being led to show and declare the renovation of Jesus? So, the series that we're in, Deconstructing Renovations, is unpacking the, con- the, the, the deconstructing our beliefs, grief, confronting a lie, and how we walk with the limp. And we're going to be seeking the spirit and unpacking the stories we've been living, the things we've believed, and the invisible structures that have upheld us to this point. Now, for me, uh, in short, this began a six-year process after I came uh, to that place of, of, of real brokenness before the Lord, and he met me in my grief. And he started to exchange this lie, because see, like I said, the lie I had believed is that God doesn't let good people suffer. But it actually was a very plain lie if I'd ever just like really, really sat with the Bible. It turns out Jesus says, you can't be my disciple unless you drink my cup. And his cup is full of like a cross. For Isaac, the knife doesn't fall. For Jesus, the nails pierce. So God does not spare his own son. So it turns out then that maybe it's not about me not encountering suffering, but maybe it's about the power of God to meet me in suffering, to give me fortitude and strength. That maybe suffering is kind of inevitable in this world, but I don't have to fear because he's overcome it. And maybe like Peter says, though I'll suffer for, the, for a little while, in due time, he is faithful. 
to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. This was the truth of God that I had lost. And when he exchanged that, I was able now to walk with a limp. I've seen some things. I've wrestled with God. But now it has produced a fidelity and a perseverance in me that there's not much that can shake me. It allows me to enter into the pain of others because I'm not shocked by how far they've fallen or where they've they've gotten themselves into. And I know what God can do. So now I give testimony to what he can do. But it was a journey. And as we enter into this stuff, it'll become a journey for you. And I don't want to dismiss that. You, I think God's given us an invitation in this season as a church to unpack this idea of renovation and what he wants to do in us. And I just want to acknowledge that this won't, if you enter into this, if you start interrogating and deconstructing the, the hurts and the beliefs and things that you've, you've lived, um, you're not going to wrap up in seven weeks when we start a new series. <laughs> and so we've got to have some, like, some, some, some resources and some things to like help beyond that. And so uh, as the band comes back up, I just want to tell you a little bit of some of the things we're going to provide um, to just help you and aid you on your journey as you walk through. Uh, the first is community groups. Uh, Ryan mentioned it earlier. Those are going to be starting soon. Um, this is so important. If you're going to enter into the work of renovation, you can't run away from community. You've got to run into it. So many of us in this season of COVID where we haven't been able to experience community like we ought to, and we've realized that church has to be way more than a sermon because you can still watch it on TV, but it hits different. You know, like this ain't it. Like I'm still getting the sermon, but like this can't be church. (laughs) And so we're realizing that like community is what's important. We have to find ways to each other. And so we're going to be starting up community groups. I want to challenge you. If you don't have one, you can go to oatsbk.church community groups. And that's going to be updated uh, starting tomorrow. And there'll be a way for you to sign up and say, hey, I'm not in one. I'd like to be in one. And these are just going to be places of meeting with people who are walking with you. I can't, I can't swim. But I've been out in the water a few times, but only because I've been with people who can. And I've trusted them that if something goes wrong, I guess they'll save me, they'll help me at least. At least somebody will tell my mom. Uh, if we're going to go through this stuff, we're just going to need people beside us. Not that they can fix us, it's not their job but just to be with us, just to listen, just to help us see where the Lord is. Second, um, we have this healing resource. Uh, our, our, it's an inner healing resource uh, composed by our dear and uh, hopefully soon to be um, um, new mother of two, Gemma. Uh, one of her last acts before into maternity leave was preparing this inner healing resource, which is it's a five-week guide to just how we like sit before God. How do we enter the sanctuary of God? 
And that's going to be uh, both on our website and it's going to be emailed out tomorrow so you'll receive it. And this is something that you could go through with a group of friends. This is something you could do with your community group if you wanted to, your core group. This is something you could do on your own. Uh, but also, uh, we want to offer you uh, a guided experience through this course. And so, uh, starting on January 24th, and for six weeks, uh, I and some of our other team members will be leading, a, a, leading us through this course here in the space at 6.30 in the morning. Because some of y'all go to work. I guess some of y'all got like nine to fives. And... Uh, you know, we got we to gotta make room for that. And so, um, yeah, if you want to come and do this together with some of our pastoral staff, uh, we want to invite you to take advantage of that space. And then also, I want to tell you just and give you like spiritual direction. Um, if you've not been familiar with spiritual direction, spiritual direction is literally just having someone who's been around the corner from you in faith and someone you can talk to and help you see clearly God. They just help you affirm and discern what God is speaking into your life. They help you order your spiritual thoughts. It's a very helpful process. And as you're interrogating, particularly your spiritual beliefs, I just want to offer that as a resource to you. On our website, if you go to oaksbk.church forward slash guidance, uh, there's a link to a directory of, of spiritual directors. And your first, if you've never done it, I know it may seem wild, but just give it a try. Your first session, that spiritual director should talk you through a little bit of what it looks like. It's not counseling. It's not therapy. It's something altogether different. It's just, an, it's just a walk with a trusted friend into the spiritual places of your heart. Uh, so go find a spiritual director. If you need help paying for it, there's a deacon's fund. Let us know. To that end, I also want to encourage professional counseling. If you're going to start digging up bones, if you're going to start deconstructing, you should probably have somebody who can help you order your thoughts. And that's what a good counselor does. They help you order your thoughts and ask the right questions. So I really just want to trust you encourage you. You can also, again, go to forward slash guidance on our website, and you'll find a link to a couple of uh, uh, professional counseling practices that we recommend. And uh, again, if you need help paying for that, that's why we have a deacon's fund. That's why we do this Christmas offering, so we can help people. But then maybe you don't need professional counseling, but you can really do with some pastoral counseling. What's the difference? Well, if you get a kind of a nasty cut on your arm, I can, I can help you like clean it out and put a bandage on it and, and help you walk through that healing process. If you break your arm, we should go to the doctor, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so pastoral counseling is a place where we get to come alongside you and to help kind of clean some wounds, dress some wounds. If you need pastoral counseling, if you'd love to sit down with an elder or a pastor in this church, again, go to guidance. There's a way to sign up. So that's it. Those are some resources as we go through this journey. As questions arise, don't, don't be afraid to reach out. But I want to challenge you. I want to invite you. Maybe you've been in this process of deconstruction. Maybe you're free falling. Get some help. 
let's like walk through this. Maybe you've just been sitting at the tension of things, going down that questions to complaints to contempt, and you find yourself kind of just really asking and not knowing like, and kind of hating other things around you. Well, let's walk through this process and see what God wants to do. So now we're going to respond. We're going to move in worship. And so the band's going to lead us in vocalizing the things that are happening in our heart. We have these prayer rugs, which are just simply spaces where you can do with your body what your heart is doing. If you need to kneel before God, lay before God, feel free to do it. There'll be members of our elders and others who can be entrusted to pray for you here, up here. We're happy to do so. And then also we believe that we are the body of God, priests, prophets, and kings, and so we can administer prayer to one another. So however you need to respond to the invitations of God today, I invite you to do that. Let's walk forward in what the Lord is doing. One last reminder, uh, if you have a kid in uh, children's ministry, um, you will need to move uh, that way at like 10 after. So I'll, I'll give you a reminder, but just, just throwing that out there. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I, I remember so vividly being in the muck and the mire. And I'm so thankful for how through my grief and through the movement of the Spirit, you walked me into your presence. And how you started cleaning out the lies of my heart so that I can walk in the newness of life. And if you've done it for me, then you can do it for us. So Lord, I pray for all those for which this resonates. May they be open to the movement of your spirit. Would you speak clearly? Would you give them the courage to take steps into healing? For those of us who have made a mess already, who've knocked down some walls that were once pretty sure, would you meet us in the rubble and help us rebuild? We need you, oh Father, we need you. So would you come, Holy Spirit, and do what only you can do. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus.